never ran on your friends, and always keep your mouth shut. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hey, Mom, what do you think? You look like a gangster. I know I'd By the time I grew up, there was 30 billion a year in cargo moving through Idlewild Airport. Believe me, we tried to steal every bit of it. What do you do? I'm in construction. He's not Jewish. Mazel tov. For most of the guys, killings got to be accepted. Hey, Henry. Here's an arm. Very funny, guys. Here's a leg. Here's a wing. <laughs> what do you like, the leg or the wing? to live any other way was nuts. <laughs> and we were treated like movie stars with muscle. We had it all just for the asking. It's gonna be a good summer. <laughs> it was a glorious time. In a world that's powered by violence, on the streets where the violent have power, a new generation carries on an old tradition. All right, uh, welcome to 30 Years Later. I am your host, Ricky Camilleri, with my co-host, Chris Chafin. This is a podcast where we talk about movies that came out 30 years ago this day. Uh, Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, Ricky. Um, I'm way higher energy than you, apparently, because you sound so aggrieved to have to start the podcast this week. No, man, that's just... All that's right, just my, all right, here we go with this fucking thing. Uh, that's just my rural character that I'm bringing back from Alaska. That's what that right. is. I'm, I'm bringing yeah. back a rural character that I'm trying out on the podcast. So Ricky was returned from his sojourn in the wilderness, and I apparently has found himself. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, great to have uh, you back. Today, we are talking about a movie that came out September 19th. Uh, this is post-September 19th because I was away and we weren't able to record, but we are talking about the classic uh, gangster film, a movie that I grew up watching with my father who used to love to laugh hysterically while Robert De Niro was, quote, putting the boots to Billy Bats. Um <laughs> And uh, it's called Goodfellas, and it's Martin Scorsese movie based off the Nick Pelleggi book starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Ray Liotta, Lorraine Bracco, uh, Paul. Um, oh, God, why can't I remember Paul's name? We have yeah, joining. Uh, yeah, Paul, we. Paul Servino? Paul Servino. Yeah. And that, that voice that you hear in the background chastising, yelling is uh, Mr. Glenn Kenny, author of the brand new, amazing book, Made Men. Um, the story of the making of Goodfellas. Glenn, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you for having me. What on earth were you doing in Alaska? Uh, I have a friend who uh, lives in Alaska, and I had meant to visit him for a while, and I just took... Uh, I went there for a week to go backpacking, uh, backcountry camping, and then I ended up staying another week so I could go hang out uh, around Denali for a while. It was, it, it was pretty fantastic. Nice. I thought maybe you were researching the... Uh cinema modi of robert aldrich his film north <laughs> to alaska <laughs> i was uh i was making a pilgrimage to um the 49th street and 49th state brewery where the bus that um that kid from into the wild uh died in is is located as, oh, nice. as, one, as one should i, I did actually, actually see that I was talking about North to Alaska recently with in relation to this trip of Ricky's like <laughs> supposedly it was a disaster from start to finish like the production was awful John Wayne hated doing it and the one of the main reasons they made the movie was Alaska had just been admitted as a state so it was big in the news at the time That's right being admitted to a state as a state is box office uh just just amazing box office appeal there <laughs> Did they make one for Hawaii when Hawaii got admitted as a state? Well, you, well, no, not as such. But you you do remember there were many, many films about Hawaii, including yes. one with Elvis Presley. Yes, that's what I was thinking, and, yeah. You know, it was a place of interest, a place of intrigue, a place, <laughs> a, place, a place for cinema, a place for cinema. 
Um, Glenn, I have to tell you, uh, I loved your book. As I said before we started, uh, it really feels like you're, as you're reading the book, you're just watching it with the most knowledgeable person about the movie who's pointing out all of the inside facts that you might not know uh, while, while watching it. Was that your intention going into it? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think of myself as like the guy sitting next to you explaining stuff. And I know that's not what you meant by saying it, but I do <laughs> think that using a scene by scene model for a large portion of the book kind of a book within the book uh, in the middle of it surrounding the stuff about the making of the film but also incorporating the stuff about the making of the film to the scene by scene description it seemed uh it seemed to make sense not just in terms of a of, of a linear narrative approach but also thematically because so much of the techno so much of the technique is very um has pertinence to what the what the themes are and what the point that the that the direct the director wants to put across that um you know to to walk you through scene by scene made a lot of sense um you know the the set pieces don't just work as set pieces in the film they work because they're in particular places in the film so Mm. to pick them out and segregate them from the rest of the film didn't make sense it it, it helps when you're trying to deal with the film as a whole to to really examine them from the not just the point of view, not just the, from the perspective of what they show, but where you're uh, where you are in the movie when they're showing it. Do you also feel like not just that those set pieces are make more sense make more sense contextually within the film, but there are so many minor details within the movie, throwaway gags, background lines, ADR lines that are hilarious but then also just details of what the characters are talking about that are not necessarily elaborated on and you just have to sort of assume that you know or they know what they're talking about that that also informs the structure with which you had to write the book right well there's a lot you know the thing that Scorsese told me when I first met him and I first met him at the end of 1989 while he was editing Goodfellas is uh he was he was very concerned with the momentum of the film and he said even if this movie comes out uh running for an hour and a half and it came out running for about an hour and i mean i'm not not an hour and a half two and a half hours even if this film is two and a half hours i'm hoping it'll be one of the fastest paced movies ever made and the film is about two hours 20 25 minutes and it was at the time and remains pretty fast paced and the point of what he was doing was to have the momentum carry you uh, carry you along with the story. So at the beginning, you know, Henry Hill is the narrator, the adult Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, is the narrator. And he's talking about the times in which he was growing up and how he had his, you know, how he was taken under the wing of these mobsters. And he says, you know, this was before Apalachin. A, a uh, it was before uh, Joe Valachi. And um, even if, you know, and most people sitting there watching the film will hear those two terms and they'll think, before what? But (laughs) they won't even have time to think that because it's just, you know, the basic seedling of information is that it was before certain things happened. It was before the fall. And what those two things were, were uh, a a raid on on a mobster summit and the testimony of a former mobster that kind of blew the Italian American mob into uh, public light in a way it never had been before, and which being thrown in the public light in that way was kind of the beginning of the end for them. So as long as you get the idea of some things happened and it was the end of this good time, you are fine. But you know as someone who's writing a critical analysis and history, you know, historical narrative about the making of the film, this gives me the chance to sort of step back and say, okay, well, what he's talking about here is this. And this other thing is that. So hopefully that adds to uh, a more rich, you know, a way of looking at the film that uh, recognizes how rich it is and how much work and research and knowledge that author Nick Pileggi had that 
director and co-screenwriter Martin Scorsese had that they brought to bear on this uh, thing. You know, Goodfellas is a film of heightened realism. You know, um, I talk about the lighting and the camera movement and the way that, you know, it, it has this kind of um, appeal that's not, you know, down to earth. Uh, but it's also very concerned with giving you uh, the historical truth, even if it's not always entirely um, factual to relative to the events of, um, you know, Henry Hill's life, it's the truth of what that life was like. I mean, well, even, I think that's so I'm interesting. Sorry. Yeah. And just like you're, and I know there's people talk about Goodfellas as being one of the most realistic gangster movies of all time. And that's, and you write very interestingly about how it's not just realistic, but it's, you know, Martin Scorsese is using this, his the visual language of cinema and his style to sort of, you know, heighten it past realism. But I mean, speaking of the, just the lines you were just talking about, and we've barely gotten past the first 10 minutes of the movie, right? Yeah. Um, I think that that so faithfully recreates the experience of hanging out with someone like Henry Hill, right? That's what it would be like. He's saying all sorts of shit. Like, you don't know what he's referring to. It's coming so fast, but it's got this kind of romance and energy to it that, like, propels you along. And and part of being confused, it, it, like, draws you in in a certain way because you're like, I don't know exactly what these people are talking about, but, like, I want to know what they're talking about and I want to know what's going on with these people because, like, it seems so glamorous, you know? And that's the whole first half of the movie or the first, you know... Yeah, I like the first half. Like, is drawing you in with this, you know, excitement, propulsion, glamour, and you're being seduced as, you know, Lorraine Bracco is being seduced, as Henry Hill is being seduced, you know. Uh, and, and I, you know, I think that's one of the great things about the movie. It stands yeah. up so well, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I recently saw a film that uh, Werner Herzog made about his friend, the writer Bruce Chatwin, who died a long time ago, who wrote travel and history books like In Patagonia. And who, uh, you know, since he died, has been kind of accused of, you know, being a little, uh, being a little fast and loose with his facts. And Herzog, in Chatwin's defense, says, "Well, you know, what Chatwin gave you is truth plus." And I think that's also something that Herzog himself does in his films. And I think it certainly applies to a movie like Goodfellas. Um, it's truth plus because it's not a dry, uh, factual recounting of what happened. It's also an emotional recounting of what happened that's meant to sweep you up in the, the, a lot of different things. The, the, the uh, sweep you up in Henry's personality, sweep you up in the, you know, kind of joy of transgression, you know, running around, stealing things, getting away with it. You know, everybody wonders in their shadow selves and their darker selves well, you know, what it's like to get away with stuff. And these gangsters, up until they stopped getting away with it and then uh, had to pay some pretty heavy dues on, on, on what they did, but, you know, uh, you know, robbing the airport like it was a city bank, what's that feel like, you know? Uh, having, the, having this wad of cash with you that you can, you know, uh, split half of it with your wife and she'll go down on you in the kitchen. What's, that, what's all that like? You know, it's not power. Henry Hill doesn't have a lot of power. And the real life Henry Hill wasn't a powerful guy. He wasn't even a really respected criminal. Edward McDonald, when I sat down with him, the prosecutor who got Henry in the witness protection program, first thing he says to me is, Henry Hill was a schmuck. Um, he doesn't say, he says it derisively, but also with a good deal of affection because he was friendly with Henry Hill. But, um, you know, what's that like where you can just sort of, you know, at the, at the end of the movie, when he comes out of the box, the witness box at the trial, and he's addressing the audience directly, he's coming down the, the middle aisle of the courtroom and the camera's backing up as he's sort of pushing you. And he's telling about this time that's soon going to be very much over for him. And his words are, everything was for the taking. So Goodfellas is a movie that answers the question. What's it like to live in a world where everything is for the taking and being one of those people for whom everything is for the taking? Because we still live in a world where, for some people... One, in regards to Henry Hill being a schmuck in real life, you know, there's been other interviews with um, 
people who floated around that world who also about talk about Henry Hill as just this like cokehead alcoholic hanger on and wasn't even particularly that involved with 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 the families. And I'm curious, one of the things that you talk about in the book is how Scorsese made a Hollywood movie and therefore cast Hollywood actors to play these parts. What do you think that has on the effect of like the portrayal of violence in the movie, the the portrayal of the life and the potential glamorization versus the negative aspects, which is something that you, you, you yeah, write about in me, the book. Let me, let me do it. Let me answer that question twofold. I mean, sure. Henry was involved. He was a career criminal for that time that he was a criminal. He did drink too much. He was, he, he did get uh, addicted to cocaine. He wasn't the most effective criminal. What the other thing Ed McDonald said was, you know, um, he was the Beatle Bailey of gangsters. He was like the court jester for these guys. They liked him for the same reason that Nick Pileggi liked him, which is because he loved to talk. He was funny and he could tell a story. So, you know, but he did. He also did crimes, and he went the Boston College point shaving scheme that he was pivotally involved in was a huge, huge deal. So, you know. He wasn't super competent, but it wasn't as if, you know, he was just there for, for giggles, although he largely was. And after witness protection and after the dissolution of his marriage, that's when, you know, the recidivism and the alcoholism and the drug abuse got really, really bad. And he, he became a very sad alcoholic. So, you know, but part of it, but again, I said he takes you into a world where everything is for the taking which is still our world, but the everything for the taking applies to people like our president and people around him. Wolf you of know, Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street. It's now, you know, it's now legally sanctioned to steal. Um, but, you know, this is also part of the paradox. You know, uh, what did Scorsese say to Terry Gross on Fresh Air earlier this year? He says, I know gangsters are bad. You don't have to tell me gangsters are bad. But so why do we like them? And this was a question that Scorsese himself had he's hanging around years ago before this movie was conceived watching Scarface the 1932 Howard Hawks movie not the movie by his friend Brian De Palma Scarface and Paul Muni's playing this utterly mooky gangster named Tony Camonte and he you know discovers a Tommy gun and he you know uh, props it up and he starts shooting with it and he's laughing like a Neanderthal and he you know he's an idiot with a gun and uh, Scorsese looks at his friend Jay Cox, he's watching the movie, and he says, we love these guys. Why do we love these guys? And so Goodfellas is kind of a way of posing that question for himself. And part of the reason we love these guys is because they are, by and large, portrayed by actors who have very interesting personalities and, you know, very interesting looks. I mean, you know, when, De you know, De Niro, not a traditional movie star looking guy. No, he isn't, but neither was John Garfield in a way. But they had movie star charisma, and they still do. And so does Ray Liotta, and so does Joe Pesci. I mean, if you look at the mug shots of uh, Jimmy Burke, uh, Jimmy Conway in the movie, and you look at Henry Hill's mug shot, uh, these guys are not guys you see in movies. They're the guys, you know... <laughs> Uh, that you see in Ninth Avenue bars, or you used to when the Ninth Avenue bars were open and you could go into them, uh, right? Or they're like they're like they're like working the electric crew on set or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. they're, they're 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 kind of mooky. So you know, but that's the inherent paradox. And I talk about how you know Scorsese is Erwin uh, Winkler, his friend and frequent producer, says Scorsese is the greatest independent filmmaker who never made an independent film. Now, he's wrong about never because After Hours was an independent film, Boxcar Bertha to a certain extent, certainly his first feature, Who's That Knocking on My Door, and Mean Streets. But the point is taken that, you know, he works for the most part within the Hollywood system. And the Hollywood system has its own codes and its own uh, necessity, you know, its own needs, its own needs for box office, uh, strong box office guys to star in their films. So, you know, you, you need that charisma. And it is, you know, Manny Farber, the film critic, uh, wrote with his wife, Patricia Patterson, a kind of excoriating account of Taxi Driver, saying that the film was schizoid and incoherent because you have this movie star looking, Robert De Niro, doing all these repellent things. So who are you with and who are you not with? And Farber is kind of asking for a moral clarity 
that's kind of beside the point because all these films have a moral ambiguity. And because of their, you know, inherent codes, they're by definition explorations and uh, inquiries into what we find attractive about uh, characters doing particular things. And in the case of films like Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, they're doing repellent things. So well, why so, do I mean, we like them? What, what is your take on this? It's sort of what you're talking about here. I mean, Henry Hill is obviously the central character of, of Goodfellas, but like, do you feel we are rooting for his success as the audience or, or we're just along for the ride or? No, no, I don't think the film is structured to make you root for his success as such. I mean, what does his success consist of? He's not, he's not a hero in the David Mamet sense of a guy who's going after a goal. He gets his goal right away. He says, for as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. And he, starts to be a gangster at age 12. But because of the way the movie starts with the killing, the re-killing of Billy Bats, the brutal, disgusting stabbing and shooting, and then it resolves in a close-up of Henry Hill's character kind of looking at the near towards the camera in complete befuddlement. And then the voiceover saying, for as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. There's an incredible irony there. You're like, well, why? Because this looks yeah. kind of awful. Exactly. Do you so think the movie, there's a? Do, so the do movie think, answers that question, but it's not a quest of like going for a goal. They don't even show the Lufthansa heist itself, right? Yeah. Well, the the point shaving scandal you're talking about, which was Henry Hill's one of his biggest crimes, and the thing that Robert De Niro's character in real life went to jail for, that was what he got convicted for. But it's like barely mentioned in the movie. Yeah, because it's not cinematically interesting. Um, when Pelleggi and Scorsese agreed to do the film together, um, they took the book Wise Guy, which is a great book. Everyone should read it after they read Made Men. Um, <laughs> and it's a great account of, of exactly what attracted to Scorsese to the project, which was the life of a ma mafia foot soldier. Um, they decided to make this, to write this script together. And the first thing they did was Scorsese said, okay, you go home, I'll go home, and we'll each um, pull out the stuff we don't want to cover in the film and leave in what we do want to cover in the film. We'll come back with outlines and we'll compare notes on the outlines and then come to an agreement of what we're going to do. And they both came back with the outlines and they were exactly the same. In other words, they got rid of the part where Henry Hill is in the army. Did you know Henry Hill was in the army? He was in the army. No. And in the army, he ran as many scams as he did while he was uh, working for Pauli uh, uh, Vario. Pauly I mean, and you can imagine a version of this movie that is only being in the army. Like if this movie had been made in the fifties, right? It would be right. like it could have been, been a, it could have been like Sergeant Bill, Sergeant Bilko. American Sergeant Bilko. Um, and the point shaving scandal was gotten rid of for two reasons. One, it was very kind of complicated, and. Um, Two, well, three reasons. I'm like the Spanish Inquisition now. We have two <laughs> reasons. Um, it was, you know, it was very complicated. I mean, point shaving is something, you know, it's easy to understand once you go through about five steps of why, why you, you know, you have to understand degenerate gamblers. You have to understand the kind of gamblers who would like bet on, well, what floor is this elevator going to stop on? Um, but even, but it's more complicated than that. So it's 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 complicated. It's outside of New York, and I think they both wanted very much for this to be a New York, uh, you know, movie story. Uh, and also, it's sports, which you know, aside from boxing and Raging Bull, is not something Scorsese's crazy about. So you know, and it's also kind of like if you read if you read Wise Guy, and again, you should. And you kind of excise that from Wise Guy. You have because it's because it's apart from the family. It's apart from the mob as such. It's essentially it's a it's it's where Henry Hill made a real lot of money, but it was also kind of a side hustle for him. It wasn't money that he paid tribute to Paulie with. It wasn't anything like that. Mm -hmm. 
it was prosecutable. And Ed McDonald, who went to the school where they were doing the point shaving, was very, very, very offended to learn this was happening and kind of made it a personal thing with him and Henry. But, um, I mean, you know, this Scorsese's not going to make a variation on blue chips, you know? He's not interested <laughs> in college. college basketball is not his thing. And weirdly <laughs> enough, interestingly enough, Henry Hill's first occasion in print was not with Nick Pileggi on Wise Guy, but in Sports Illustrated, writing, <laughs> writing with a couple of other Sports Illustrated writers about how he fixed this thing. I'm curious, you know, going back to the opening scene where Billy Bats gets killed and uh, we have, uh, as far back as I can remember, I always want to be a gangster, drop the tune in, and then the credits start. The dramatic irony that's used there is used multiple times in the movie. And Chris and I were talking about this before, and I think it's referenced in the book how even David Chase said that the sort of irony of like the life outside of the violence juxtaposed with the violence is what led to Chase sort of coming up with the idea for the Sopranos. I wonder if in retrospect, you at all see a limit to that irony and to that stylization since so often it's felt like over the last 30 years, Goodfellas has been misunderstood and misquoted um, in terms of its, what its intentions were as a, as a movie. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the 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 movie kind of poises on a knife edge of of hilarity and mayhem throughout much of its running time, and there is a kind of slapstick uh, of the emotional violence, uh, not so much of the physical violence, which is depicted in a, a way that's pretty much terrible and harrowing and 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 often very very sudden. But, you know, Scorsese's making a work of art. He's not doing uh, a lecture. This is not a, like, as with Taxi Driver and other films of his, you're not going to get someone coming in from, from the right side of the frame to say, now, kids, this is wrong. Don't do this at home. Um, you know, Henry Hill's story is presented in a lot of its different facets. But, you know, his poor character is 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 pretty evident from the minute he uh, becomes an adult and they are at that diner. Tommy and Henry are at the diner and they're setting up this truck hijacking and they're going to try and fob off the responsibility for the truck hijacking on a, on these mythical black guys. You know, they're not only hoodlums, but they're racists who are perpetuating uh, myths about black crime. And, you know, um, that's not funny. Uh, but, you know, you're carried along uh by it because of the momentum of the movie, but there's plenty of places in the movie where you can just sort of step off and say, well, you know, um, these characters are kind of morally repugnant and what they do is, uh, is nasty and, uh, you know, destructive and, and hurtful. So there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, if you're the idea that the humor, um, is responsible for, uh, you know, the viewer's moral blindness. You know, the viewer makes choices too. Film is often seen as a passive medium, but the viewer, in, in, especially in a film like this, is kind of making choices about what he or she is processing. Mm. I um, think what Ricky was talking about too was not just like, you know, the viewer and the way that we're interpreting the film, but sort of like, if you think about the legacy of Goodfellas over the next 30 years, like it, it has been, you know, like like the same way that people could see Wall Street and think that Gordon Gecko is the hero of the movie. You know, have we led to thirty years of people making funny, violent movies? You know, like is is that insane? And that's not to say that that's pinned on Scorsese or it's somehow the fault of Goodfellas, but it's like people having an imperfect interpretation of the film. It's it filmmakers having that interpretation has led to so many movies and TV shows that are doing a, you know, 65% version of this, where it's like, they're not quite really getting what, what Scorsese is doing. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could accuse it of wellspringing, but I mean, what's the artist supposed to do? Just say, well, I won't do this because I'm afraid that dumber people will make <laughs> you know, I mean, what are you going to do? How can you deal with that? And you know, there's a there's a scene in Wolf of Wall Street that addresses this sort of thing 
absolutely directly, and it's an absolutely fact-based scene, which is when Forbes did a story about Jordan Belfort, called him the Wolf of Wall Street, ripped him apart. He was very upset by the way he was portrayed in the story and by the way Stratton Oakmont was portrayed in the story, and he was feeling like his life was over and the firm's life was over, and he comes in the next day, and there's a hundred schmucks in Brooks Brothers suits waving their resumes in his face because they all read the story and they want to be part of this thing. So, you know, that's the world. What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Glenn, I, I'm curious in terms of the movie's legacy, uh, 30 years ago when it came out, I was a, a, a wee uh, spry child. Um, but when I started to get into movies, like just a few years later, Goodfellas, was seemed to be already a classic. Like by 93, 94, it felt like Goodfellas had existed forever to to me at that at, at that age when it was only a few years old. Do you remember what the impact of it was when it was was it when it was first released? Did it feel like that? No, actually, it was a funny thing. I mean, the movie did well, and it was a conversation starter to be sure, and it did well enough that Warner Brothers thought that it would be a good idea to emulate its marketing campaign, which was very heavily skewed towards uh, the critic reviews, which were largely ecstatic, they thought, well, we'll get great reviews for Bonfire of the Vanities and we'll use them in the ads just like we did for Goodfellas and uh, Bonfire of the Vanities will perform better than we think it will. And of course, the problem with that uh, idea is that Bonfire of the Vanities got terrible reviews. But Goodfellas was a hit at the box office uh, at the time. Uh, it wasn't a hundred million dollar hit, but it was something past forty million dollars, more than more than double its budget. And it definitely was an exciting film from Scorsese, after a series of films that were exciting for different reasons or not as exciting as they'd been. Um, but it wasn't legendary. But you're right. About a year and a half, two years later, all of a sudden, everybody's quoting it. Every stand-up comedian you see on Comedy Central is doing a variant on uh, Tommy, some, Tommy's uh, How Am I Funny shtick. Uh, and it seems to have gone from a movie that was a modest success to a movie that everybody had seen because it did well on cable. It did well on home video. It did, you know, it got, uh, you know, Dances with Wolves beat it at the uh, Oscars the next year. But Goodfellas has made so much more money than Dances with Wolves on video. So all of a sudden it seemed everywhere and there were riffs on it happening that even De Niro was involved in, you know, analyze this, I don't think would have happened without Goodfellas. Um, and certainly the combination of Goodfellas and analyze this were what fed into uh, David Chase's The Sopranos. So, you know, it did become legendary almost not quite in an underground way, but more so than you would have thought considering that it was only a modest box office success. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere. It's everybody, uh, everybody you meet. I mean, I lived in, you know, I was living in New York. So, you know, maybe not in Montana, everybody you meet was saying, how am I funny? Um, but uh, yeah, that was, it became a cat. It became a meme before the internet. What was the response to it? Like it, within the, the critic circles very early on when it, when it came out, I mean, obviously critics loved it, but what were the sort of main um, disagreements about the movie? If, if there, if there were any, the main thing that people didn't like, and that was expressed in a review in variety, which um, was written by Joseph McBride. And then a review by Andrew Saris in the village voice. Um, both of those critics were um, uh, really came down on Scorsese for something that they feel that they both felt had been a feature of Scorsese's work for a long time, which was narrative diffuseness. You know, you were talking about uh, do we root for Henry in the film, but the movie doesn't have a structure that allows for a rooting interest. And um, Scorsese himself has said, uh, in several uh, contexts that he hates plot in films. He loves story, but he hates plot. So Goodfellas is not a plotted movie. You know, it's, it's kind of structured around uh, a series of events that happen in a way that may or may not be arbitrary leading up to this virtuoso scene, which presages his fall and, and uh, being forced into the witness protection program. And, and Saris, Saris, Andrew Saris, who, 
you know, was a pioneer of the auteur theory in America. So, uh, you know, really showcased in his early work, the directors like Howard Hawks and John Ford that became huge influences on the so-called movie brats of the Easy Riders Raging Bull uh, era, such as Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola. So, you know, Saris and, and, and Scorsese had that affinity but uh, for, for Saris, the breaking point was were two things. He wanted, he says right in the, as his review starts, he says, I, I want my gangsters larger than life. I don't want my gangsters to be foot soldiers. So that was the objection right off the bat. And then, uh, you know, this kind of thing where he feels like the narrative just becomes evanescent. And uh, McBride, another uh, a biographer of both John Ford and uh, Frank Capra, felt that, you know, there was a, a, you know, a bit, a bit too little uh, in terms of, of, of meaningful stories. So, uh, but everybody else, uh, Pauline Kael's review was very interesting. You know, she says, uh, yeah, well, I don't think this is a great movie. And then goes on for thousands of words to talk about how great it is. Uh, <laughs> she was so, well, no, no, I mean, she's so caught up in the film and she's recounting these details and, in such a loving and excited way, it's a really interesting review to read because she gets you just as caught up in the movie as Henry gets you caught up in the gangster lifestyle. It's part of the reason that people think she's such a great and vivid critic. And David Edelstein in the Villa, in, in the New York Post talking about the sophistication of Scorsese's film language. Uh, you know, it was, uh, people were really, it, it's an exciting film and it's, it excited critics very much. Uh, so we had uh, amazing, incredible, terrible technical difficulties with Glenn. Um, where on Zencaster, if you listen to this podcast, by the way, if you are one of the thirty years later heads out there that just love <laughs> can't get enough of this podcast, can't get enough. At tweet at Zencaster and yell at them for messing up. Uh, the thirty year, the first thirty years later episode that had a guest because what a shit show it became, and I can't oh thank uh, Glenn so- enough for riding through it. We had the first recording fail, and then the second recording fail, and the worst of it for Glenn must have been the fact that on Chris and I's end, we couldn't see Glenn and he- or hear him, so it seemed like he wasn't there. But Glenn was apparently still there, according to the recordings we were able to retrieve, and could hear Chris and I freaking out the whole time, which I have to say, I may put at the end of the show so people can hear Chris and I freaking out that we couldn't hear Glenn anymore. I seem to remember saying, like, Ricky, you said something like, uh, oh, did you send him another invite? And I said, no, no, I'm just panicking. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, I think think we lost Glenn. Fuck, shit, fuck, 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 shit, Glenn fucking shit <laughs> um but uh I, I will say once again uh, you know glenn's book uh is a, a really incredible dissection um of the movie uh one of the best that i think that there's been i don't know how many books there have been specifically about goodfellas but i mean he's a true scorsese fan and critic and knows what he's talking about and if you like scorsese and like the movie uh, I highly recommend um, reading the book, and we can't thank him enough for for being here. There's a couple things since I read the book. Uh, there's a couple things that like I wish I could have talked to him about, but I'm just going to talk to um, you know uh, a poor Chris. yeah is that, is a, a that, poor, is that what you're looking for Chris a, 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 a poor poor substitute Chris oh, and me yes. thank you, thank uh, you thank about you. them. And one of the things that uh, Glenn talks about in the in the book in regards to Goodfellas is that Scorsese initially, when talking about the structure and the style of the movie, said he wanted to emulate fucking shit. There's a fucking somebody at the door. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things that Scorsese talked about, one of the things that Scorsese talked about when it came to the style of the movie was wanting to emulate, um, tabloid shows that were growing in popularity in American news media, things like a current affair, things like 
hard copy, though I'm not sure if hard copy was was yet to come out. But for whatever reason, he talked about the movie emulating that style, both in terms of the voiceover and in terms of how fast-paced everything was. And I was kind of shocked to read that because I never thought of the movie as emulating as emulating that style, nor did I ever see it as anything even a, as an homage to that style. Chris, what do you think about that? No, I mean, I didn't, I would not have gotten that in a million years. And it's funny because that like format of something of, you know, those hard copy current affair shows, it's so identifiable. And I mean, a movie we talked about on the show, I think is that movie SFW, which like that very much a hundred percent is like structured, like a hard copy show. And it's kind of told through that, that like those camera techniques and editing techniques. I mean, I, I love the idea that like filtered through Martin Scorsese, that becomes Goodfellas. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I love that he's like, oh yeah, I want to do something like hard copy, and it ends up being Goodfellas. Like he's just too good. He just is physically incapable of making something like hard copy. Like, well, I think I think that goes to show uh, in in terms of all of his influences, though, because Glenn refers to um, Italian horror directors with the first scene of the movie and with the scene oh, when yeah. they're digging up Billy Batts's body and the sort of like blood red that paints the entire screen, almost to the point where it feels like. It's so red that you're breaking the rules of filmmaking and every, and, and the screen itself is kind of bleeding, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. And how that is like a very direct reference to Dario Argento or yeah. Lucio Fulci and the way that they use the the the, the color red uh Gale, I think Gallo Gallo horror films. Um but I have seen those movies and I never thought of that when I, whenever I, when I watched Goodfellas because it feels so specifically unique and of its own. It doesn't feel like a direct reference. I think Scorsese is so good at synthesizing his references into something new and original rather than just being a sort of commentary on those references, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And I mean, I wouldn't have thought directly of like, Suspiria or Don't Look Now or something when I was looking at those scenes, but watching it again, I mean, you definitely get that it's like horror influenced because the screen is just so, so red. And then you are like, there's kind of the, like Glenn talks about the, you know, dolly or zoom in on the trunk while it's banging. And then the reverse shot of everybody looking kind of horrified at the trunk. And then, you know, they turn out to be the murderers and with a Joe Pesci with a giant chef's knife stabs the guy in the trunk to death. And it is, it is very like, you're getting that you're in a horror movie for a second, you know, and obviously it's not like a horror movie, but it, it, it evokes those kind of references in, in your mind. So, Moving towards uh, our final stage of, or do, Chris, I'm sorry. Of I mean, life, I'll, I'll yeah. just, I'll just cut, I'll just cut uh, my my mistakes right here. Is there anything? Is there stuff that you wanted to talk about before we jump into the uh, the the five, the three, the last three? Well, yeah, there was just one thing uh, you were mentioning it a little bit when when around the hard copy stuff, the way that there's like a use of voiceover, and I mean, watching the movie again, it really struck me you know, what an entirely voiceover heavy movie it is. And that even it's like Lorraine Bracco gets some voiceover too for a little bit, just kind of out of nowhere. Um, and and obviously so many of the lines you remember, like, you know, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster, are voiceover. But somehow it's like in your memory and your emotional experience of Goodfellas, you don't think of it as like, this is that movie that has like... <laughs> And at two straight hours of voiceover, like, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like that because usually it takes you out of the movie in some way or it's clunky, but it is like maybe the most successful voiceover of movie of all time, like up there with like days of heaven, right? It's, it's just so perfectly a part of the film that you don't even think about it. It Well, I think you're hanging out with Henry Hill, you know, and he's telling you a story. Well, I think like, almost like days of heaven and they're very different types of voiceovers but what is similar is that they describe in very plain ways how something felt versus dictating the story while you're watching it whereas like you want like most unsuccessful voiceover which is most voiceover is unsuccessful because it's just telling you the thing that you're seeing 
Because it, it's there because they think you're confused about what's going on. So they've yeah. gone back at some point and added in like the main character saying, then I went to John's house. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's very different in a, in a movie like this. It's it's artistic and it's conversational and it, it, it adds to what's happening. It doesn't sort of like exist separately from what's happening. Right. It's like describing Polly as we're seeing Polly. And it's also very succinct and well written, right? Like you get yeah. one line about Polly, which is that like Polly may have moved slow, but that's because Polly didn't move for anybody. Or what you're getting is like you're watching these guys move from phone booth to Polly's house to whispering to somebody else, and you're being you're being told what that means, rather than just being like, you know, Oftentimes we went to phone booths and then we went to Polly and then we went to, it's, it's a very succinct description that is a gateway into the life rather than that. Like you just said, like, and then I went to John's house while I watched someone go to John's house, who I know is John. And I start yelling at the screen, like, <laughs> stop telling me what you're doing. What just show me. This? Right. Or it's like, you know, the time of the Zargons. You know, at the dawn of the sixth age, the Zargons came to eat all of our berries. And it's like, you know, it's just happening and it's it's just so well done. Yeah. Uh, so, Chris, what is your uh, favorite part of the movie? I mean, it's a tough call, right? I mean, it's such a well done movie. It's such a classic. I mean, I will say um, on my most recent watch, it you just the whole sequence of the day where Henry Hill gets arrested with the helicopters and the he's doing cocaine and he's got all these chores that he's doing. He has to run all these errands and the way that the voiceover is used in that and the way that the cuts and, and the way that everyone's acting heightens this like sense of extreme dread and anxiety you're having the entire time. I mean, that's, it's such a masterfully done sequence and it goes on for, I don't know, like half an hour or something. It's like yeah. very, very detailed. I it, recently uh, saw, I recently saw a quote from Josh Safdie talking about Goodfellas and he said, Martin Scorsese makes a 30 minute sequence feel like four minutes. Yeah, exactly. Cause you're just like on the edge of your seat the entire time. The cuts are so fast. The camera's like swooping around all the time. There's cuts, cuts, cuts. And you know, you're listening to Ray Liotta to keep describing like, he's always thinking about like the next thing he has to do. And it's, it drives you insane. I think in Glenn's book, there's a whole part about how like, the test audiences were made so, so uncomfortable by that sequence. And Scorsese was like, yeah, that's the point. That's why I made it that way. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. I One of the things that I love about that sequence is that there are still an amazing number of hilarious throwaway lines that are just kind of like in the background or in the side. Like when he's arguing with the babysitter about going to get her hat and then finally decides like, what the fuck was I going to do? She needed her fucking hat. And they walk out of the kitchen, the camera like, pans quickly and pushes in on Lorraine Bracco and she just finishes the scene by going a hat cut to them outside <laughs> and then there's also a moment where they're she's eat, they're they're finally eating the dinner that Leota and his brother have been cooking uh, you know all day and Lorraine Bracco is yelling at her daughter for feeding the the dog and she goes please stop feeding the dog from the table with your plate on it on top of the table, please. And her daughter goes, I have to. And she goes, you don't have to. <laughs> it's just like this like throwaway bit that is so, so funny. And then like when her, she meets the Pittsburgh people and she's, she's like, I need a hit. And the guy's like, you want to see helicopters? There's just like, <laughs> no, it's like so many little things within that sequence that are like and Isaiah Whitlock from the from from the wire playing oh, yeah. the doctor, right? Who who has God. to like who like refuses to let Ray Liotta go without giving him like a quick checkup. And Ray Liotta, just the way that he looks so pale and sweaty and like completely strung out on cocaine. <laughs> and like just imagine a doctor like being like no you have to you have to let me look at you like you look really bad robert de niro in the in the in his robe with a cigarette in his mouth trying to put silencers in the gun and he's just being he's like shoving them in and pulling them out and they don't fit he's like oh what do you want me to it doesn't yeah, come on he's like, he's like i'm not fucking paying for these okay to, to cut it out with those drugs to turn into mine in a mush then he shuts I, the door. I love that sequence. I love that sequence with Robert De Niro too, because it reminds you that all the action you're seeing is taking place at 8 a.m. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to do like, with these? Oh, I'm not right. fucking paying for this. 
oh, right, it's still 8 a.m. And he's like already out of his mind on coke and like. But that's what I, I think I said to Glenn when we were talking to him is that, that there isn't a shot in the movie that isn't bursting with like entertaining detail of some kind. You know, like if if there's a pan over a party, you can hear the dialogue and you can hear funny lines that people are saying to each other. If there's just like one shot of a group of people having dinner, there's a funny conversation being had in in that moment you know if they're having a conversation with the guy who's going to put them in the witness protection program instead of like going over the simple details of what the testimony is going to be they're arguing over whether or not ray Liotta is quote legitimately bronchial which is (laughs) so it's so funny (laughs) i mean well that's just what's so good about the film from like top to bottom and why it's been so inspirational to so many people you know, including like the entire thing of the Sopranos is like, it's just completely full of life, right? Like yes. all the side characters don't know that they're in a movie that's about Ray Liotta. Like they are just like barely even listening to him or totally doing their own thing and saying weird things. It's, it's just like the experience of being alive. Like other people aren't, they don't know you're the protagonist. You know what I mean? Like they're living their own lives. They're like, oh, helicopters. Uh, I want to talk about this other thing, <laughs> you know? Um, one of my, uh, I, I can't really say my favorite part of the movie, but one of my favorite parts of the movie, and it's because of what it, I don't want to say taught me about filmmaking when I was growing up, but it just illustrates the possibilities in a, in, in a way that it's completely different than anything you'd seen before. And it's, it's the Billy Bat scene, but when Atlantis kicks in by Donovan, Atlantis by Donovan mm-hmm. kicks in, right? So you have the the spoken word part while Bats and De Niro are talking and then Tommy comes in and all of a sudden the melody kicks in and it's like, and the music goes from, and he does this multiple times in the movie where it goes from diegetic to non-diegetic, meaning that like Mm -hmm. it's playing in the room on a jukebox, but then all of a sudden the, the volume turns up and it becomes something much more cinematic and about the, the scene and the movie and the themes uh, overall, which I don't think, I'm sure I had seen someone do that in the movie. I mean, I also think Scorsese may have a copyright on doing that in movies, starting yeah. with with Mean Streets. I don't think anybody else had really been doing it. And I don't think anybody had done it to the extent to which he does it in Goodfellas, which is, it seems like every scene goes from diegetic to non-diegetic in yeah. terms of how the music works, or vice like versa. Wes Anderson does it all the time now, but it's just yes. a direct reference to Scorsese, right? Or like PTA was doing it in Boogie Nights, but Boogie Nights was also like an intentional riff on Goodfellas. Um, but I think that uh, when I first started liking movie or sort of liking movies and understanding what a director does, that was one of the first sequences where I was like, "Oh, I see what he did. I I see that someone put this together and is like trying to illustrate something different than most than most movies." Um, and that's like when Ray Liotta runs to the door and it, the camera pushes very quick, dollies very quickly in on the lock turning and you hear way down below the ocean and they start kicking the ever living hell <laughs> out, of, out of Billy Bats. Oh my God. Yeah. It's just so brutal. Um, that I mean, also is, um, that also is Glenn's favorite scene. I have emailed him and asked him his, the three answers to this. And that is also Glenn's favorite scene, but his description of it is has to be quote. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. I say it every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a bully. What a bully. I mean, you're going to get fucking stomped to death. If you keep talking like that, you better watch out Glenn. <laughs> Um, Ricky, what do you think the most 90s part of this movie is? Um, I think the most 90s part of the movie, uh, and it's by no fault uh, of the movies, uh, but I do think the most 90s thing is, um, do you think I'm a clown? Am I, am I amusing to you? Like, am I amusing to you? Am I here for your amusement? Simply because from like 1990 to 2000, it was quoted in fucking everything all the time. And then you also had like the Joe Pesci show where Jim Brewer played Joe Pesci on SNL. I don't know if you remember that. And that was in the nineties. I forgot, but now I'm remembering it vividly. Yeah. And you know, because of Goodfellas, the night like the 90 Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro became synonymous with these gangster like characters no matter what else they had played prior or post right. I mean Joe Pesci then ended up playing like 
eight heads in a duffel bag and like you know gangsters and there's a reason he got out of hollywood got out of making movies <laughs> um but yeah i think it's i think it's joe pesci's uh am i a clown scene um simply I mean, because was of what it became that too right about yeah. like how immediately that was like every stand-up comic was doing that and it was just such a huge part of culture and i mean watching the movie again i mean it's a good sequence but it is just so crazy that that is the thing from the movie that became like the meme that everyone was saying all the time and because it's not like the funniest or the scariest part of the movie it, it's I don't know why that happened, but it just completely captivated people's imaginations or it was fun to do the voice. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck it was, but fun it- to do the voice, man. It's fun to like, it is fun to, to do an iconic voice. It's why Donald Trump is president. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Um, for me, I got to say the most nineties part is, um, I mean, I totally agree with what you said, but, um, the, I think it's the violence and the particular way the violence is portrayed in the movie. I mean, I think this movie coming out in 1990, and then you think about the whole rest of the cinema of the 1990s, like the independent crime cinema. I mean, starting with Pulp Fiction and going like all around the world everywhere. I mean, this sort of set the tone for how you portray like for how you portray violence in this kind of complicated way where your lead characters are doing it and it's very grisly and gruesome, but it it walks this line between like horrific and like kind of cool, but also like you're like, but no one should do this. This is absolutely awful. And it was, you know, politicians were talking about this all the time. You know, people were writing about this all the time. I mean, that was like one of the big things from the film. I think that reviewers took issue with, or at least commented on was, you know, blood splattering everywhere and shooting and beating and stabbing and then you know that just had like a you know it hit filmmakers and wannabe filmmakers you know like a fucking stomping on your face in a bar you know what i mean it was like the rest of the decade was like this right and there was always there was that sense of irony surrounding violence in 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 the rest of the decade or so so surrounding how violence was depicted for whether it was Travolta and Samuel Jackson shooting a guy in the face and then like you know trying to figure out if it was just if it was a bump in the road or if John Travolta pulled the trigger or if it was you know the in Boogie Nights the sort of build-up of Bill Macy's character getting to shooting himself but like you laughing multiple times out of his wife cheating on him before he did it or the scene in Rayhead Jackson's house where he's like you know alfred molina's in a speedo and smoking crack and like you know whispering that his fella is chinese while he throws firecrackers in the air there's also i I, I gotta say way down to like fucking eight heads in a duffel bag and very bad things and all these like really terrible versions of it but it was you just could not get away from this kind of stuff i have to say one of the things that i noticed while watching uh goodfellas this time was in the sequence where in the in the 1980s sequence where he's ripped out on cocaine there are at least two moments where Ray Liotta makes the exact same face that Mark Wahlberg makes in the Rayhad Jackson scene where you know that there in in Boogie Nights there's that like minute and a half shot of Mark Wahlberg just looking into space like totally yeah. confused about what's happening there i mean i don't think P.T. Anderson did it intentionally. I just think that Goodfellas was probably such a game changer for someone that age in 1990 that liked movies that you probably watched it like a hundred thousand times, and you were eventually and just I mean, like if you writing star in a movie where you're like playing a completely coked out person. I mean, yes. it would be one of the best things to watch. <laughs> you know, to get ready for that, right? And there, there, there feels to me like watching how do i like how do i do that 1980 sequence but my but a different version and my own version and it's like oh well like instead of speeding it up let's slow it down and show how like fucking glass-eyed and 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 brainless this person is who's strung out right like it yeah. just feels like a very direct not direct but a inspired reference to uh with it uh, i mean the whole movie is but um, what is, uh, it's been 30 years. What do you think this movie's grown out of, Chris? You know, it's a, this is a hard one. I was thinking about this because it's been so influential and it's such a classic. In a way, it seems as fresh as, as ever, you know? I do think it has kind of some, it's really hard to put your finger on, but there's something about the like 
aggressive nastiness of it that is very like 1990 like it reminds me of a movie we may do later in the year uh, like king of new york like there's something about this like something about the energy of it that is very like specifically 1990 that i don't think you find anymore but i mean other than that i don't know they say the n-word a couple times you probably wouldn't do that if you were making the movie right now but like maybe you would i don't know but i i somehow i doubt it that's actually what uh, Glenn says as well. Glenn says, quote, I discuss this in the book relative to the Irishman, the depiction of racism in the characters. Scorsese knows that in this day, having the characters use certain racist epithets won't fly. So he's tamped that down, which is smart. He definitely knows the times have been changing. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking that as well, like, because exactly what Glenn said about the Irishman, because it's very similar, but they don't. I mean, as far as I remember, they're not using the N-word as much as they do in, in Goodfellas. And sort of in the way that they're using it as, like, referring to people, you know? It's, it doesn't, it feels gross to watch right now. I think that for, for me, and it's similar to what Glenn says, and also similar to what you say, is that I think that Scorsese has grown up in 30 years, and his interest in how... Ha- in his... How he depicts violence and how he depicts this world has changed and been influenced by the reaction to 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 these movies and the celebration of the violence uh in 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 these movies if i think that the irishman is a very clear repudiation of the res- like how people have responded to this the, these movies over the years it's a slow punishing movie where the 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 main character who commits the acts of violence is not cool joe pesci is the, as the head of this gangster crew is not cool. The moral center of the movie is a gray moral center that is Al Pacino played by Jimmy Hoffa, very gray moral center, but he is not necessarily cool. He's 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 kind of the comic foil to these guys who live by an almost fascist ide- ideology in terms of serving each serving the head without thinking about it. And I think that the way he depicts violence in that movie is far different intentionally. So than the way he depicts violence in mean streets, Goodfellas, casino, even the excesses of, of, of Wolf of wall street. It feels like 30 years from Goodfellas. He's had a, I wouldn't say a change of heart, but I, I think he's had a, uh, and a, uh, re- new thoughts about how, how violence should be depicted on screen. Well, in, in thinking about this link between Goodfellas and the Irishman, I, I was thinking about, uh, you know, I'm a new father. I'm thinking about kids a lot. Like the Irishman got so much flack for Anna Paquin playing Robert De Niro's daughter, but she doesn't have any lines, right? But she's a presence in the movie and she's, you know, a lot of the, especially sort of the end of the movie is about how, you know, he has completely failed to connect with her and she's ostracized him because of what, what he's done. But, you know, the people were mad that she didn't have enough lines or any lines, right? Um, but then if you're watching Goodfellas, it's like their kids just disappear like halfway through the movie. Like the kids are only in like two or three scenes and then they are just gone, you know, and nobody talks about it. Like, well, there's so a great, there is a great, very intentional shot on his child when he's storming out of the house after throwing a lamp at Lorraine oh, Bracco's yeah, head. Yeah. Um, and it's a such a phenomenal shot on this like, potentially broken-hearted child like the child is confused scared and sad I, I don't know how he got the performance that performance from a from from that little girl for that one shot i mean it did make both me and Catherine watching the movie go like oh it's just heartbreaking to look at the look of yeah confusion and love and sadness on this little girl's face as she watches her you know, she just heard her mom and dad have this huge screaming fight and then her dad's storming out of the house. And you know it's not like the first time something like this has happened. And it's it's just heartbreaking to look at. And it's, it's like you said, it's an amazing performance. Um, Goodfellas 30 years later holds the fuck up. I mean, who, who, really good. who I mean, knew? Who, who knew? I, mean, I don't think it was really in doubt. But yeah, it holds, it holds up I mean, like really strong. I mean, is, there, is there any Scorsese movie that doesn't? I, I don't think so, to be know, honest. Like Main Streets doesn't hold up like fantastically well. It's interesting mm. because it's a Martin Scorsese movie, I would say. like If it was not a Martin Scorsese movie, I, I don't know that people would talk about it that much. I mean, of course, it's a good movie, and it's fantastic, but it's interesting because you see the kernel of what he's going to go on to do in the rest of his career. Yeah, that's true. That 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 That's true. I, I personally love Main Streets and De Niro's performance and Keitel. I mean, it's a... 
but yeah, a lot of that is about watching the sort of the first EP of what right. they're all of what they're all going to do. Um, I wonder. I feel like they all hold up for for various reasons. Um, you know, whether it's like I even I know lots of people don't like the color of money. I love the color of money. I've never even seen that. Never oh my god, that. dude! It's so much fun. It's a movie that he made for money. Uh, because he was pretty broke after the King of Comedy. Like the King of Comedy was just like a huge failure, um, which is a great movie. I mean, that's another movie that just gets better and better every every, every decade. The King of was Comedy. It the, was it the Color of Money where he, that's where he read Wise Guy, like on the set of yes. Color of Money? Yeah, yeah I believe so. Tells you what, like, how commit how like not exactly in the game he was he was just sitting around <laughs> reading novels i mean obviously there's a lot of time to sit around on a movie set and you can read a whole novel book and be completely plugged in and in charge of everything but also like yeah you know i think and then i think after color of money he made last temptation and then he made uh and then and then came then came goodfellas yeah, yeah, exactly. but yeah um so uh yeah wonderful having glenn on Go yeah, pick up so his great. book. If you're listening, go pick up his book, Made Man. Very intimidating to talk to him. Very smart guy. I just felt like I didn't want to say anything stupid. And I <laughs> don't know that I succeeded, but I was like, great, great to talk to him. Well, yeah. I mean, you didn't say anything stupid. What we did do was uh, use a program that made us look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Did we lose Glenn again? Oh my god, it looks like we lost Glenn again, but I'm not gonna click, let's not click stop this time. Must be his internet connection or something. I don't know if you can hear us, Glenn. It looks like he's gone, Um, it's great. You can hear him? Oh, okay. I can hear him, oh, now it seems like I got lost. I think you're hearing him on maybe the other thing. No, because I have that muted, I don't know if you... Okay, I heard him for a second. Glenn, can you hear me now? It's a disaster. Ricky, what's happening? Let's just wait it out because he came back last time. Let's just see if he comes back. No, he's gone for good now. Nope. Well, he came back last time, though.